Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio is my friend, Niklas Savos. How are you today? I'm really thrilled today. We have the great pleasure to talking to Rajiv Agrawal, fund manager and managing partner at DoorDashi India Fund. Many of your listeners may recognize Rajiv from our Omaha special episode number 21, as we interviewed him in Omaha. Rajiv is a big reader, and for today's episode, he has picked one of our favorite books, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac, compiled by Peter Kaufman, but with speeches and comments from Charlie Munger. Here comes our conversation with Rajiv Agrawal. So, welcome to the studio, Rajiv. Thanks a lot, Eddie, and thanks a lot, Nicholas. It was a wonderful experience talking to you in Omaha, and I look forward to this session as well. Thank you. Where are you located today? I am in Edison, New Jersey, so coming from the Atlantic Ocean side of things. (laughs) So to set the stage a bit, uh, Rajiv, how did your passion for investing start? Yeah, that's that's actually a great question. Um, Nicholas, I actually was always interested in investing when I was growing up. So... When I was in my school, my grandfather uh, used to read these newspapers and those newspapers would have details about an IPO that is coming out. And I would always watch my grandfather and my uncle read the newspaper and try to find stocks that they would want to invest in. And to me, that was very interesting. It was like, wow, you can read something and decide to invest based on that. And so I was curious about it, but I never had any money uh, and never had any account. And so what happened was, um, once I was uh, once I went to do my bachelor's, I had some independence and I had some money. <laughs> so and at that point, was what was going on in the Indian equity market was there was a big boom that was going on. You know, the stocks were just going up and up. And I said, listen, I am interested in stock markets. The markets are going up. And of course, I know all that needs to be known about the stock market. So I went in and invested in some IPOs. And of course, very promptly within a year, they were not even worth the paper on which they were printed. Uh, And so that was a period where I was very excited. And then I realized I know nothing. And then, you know, once you have that very bad experience, you sort of, I sort to myself, I will never, ever again invest in, uh, do any investments, right? Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> and then in the early 2000s, I came to US. So I came to US in 2000, and somewhere I would say in the 2002-3, I started becoming aware of uh, Buffett and Munger, more of Buffett. And the more I came to know about Buffett, the more I realized that this approach makes a lot of sense. So that was my early start. And uh, you know, uh, once you come in the sphere of Buffett and Munger, and if you like that sphere, it's very hard to get out. And to me, it has just continuously drawn me into into that particular way of doing things. And from all the literature about these giants, why have you chosen the book Poor Charlie's Almanac? Okay, so that's such a wonderful question. Uh, to me, the book is all about how to think, right? And how to invest. And then most importantly, how to live one's life, right? And to me, the biggest contribution that Charlie Munger has made into my life is how should I think about making decisions on a day-to-day basis in my life. And, you know, in a highly complex world that we all live in, uh, it is very important to simplify the world. And the way to simplify the world is by having mental models. And I feel that poor Charlie's Almanac is all about having mental models and then using them 
on an ongoing basis so that you can make decisions. You know, as Buffett has said multiple times, Munger has the best 30 seconds mind in the whole world, right? He can go from A to Z in, in 30 seconds. And I believe that he can do that because he has trained himself through these mental models that he shares with us in the book, which allows him to quickly see what doesn't make sense and therefore zone in on what makes sense. And, and I think that if we can all learn a little bit more from Munger, we will be a lot more effective in investing, but more importantly, in life. And for how long have you had this knowledge and honed it? When was the first time you read the book? I would say um, in the in the late 2000s. So I would say around 2008, 9 is when I started reading it. And it is not an easy book in the sense that you have to keep going through it because you read it and you have to reread it. And now what I do is every every other week, I'm just picking up and flipping through a few pages because, you know, you come across a situation and you say, OK, that's interesting. And does that correlate to anything that I am seeing in in um, what poor Charlie Zelmanek talks about? And by having that correlation between reality and what has been laid out as a theory, I think I'm able to use the theory into more situations. And that is really how I'm using the book now. Sounds like a Bible. <laughs> it sounds like a Bible, absolutely. It is. <laughs> but in this case, we really know who, who the author is, and it's Peter Kaufman. And uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about him. Yeah, so Peter Kaufman, I think, um, has been a big Charlie fan. He lives in uh, California, and he has been somebody who has been running a very big company for a long time. And, you know, the good thing about this whole ecosystem of Peter Kaufman, Charlie Munger, Buffett, all of these guys is just how good they are in trying to ensure that they are being rational. They are thinking about things which are the most important and ensuring that they are throwing away anything which is not relevant. And I think Peter Kaufman, again, is somebody who has published about how to be, how to think about things. And he actually does a wonderful job in one of his talks about, you know, how to think about what are the principles that are the most relevant, right? Inorganic matter, organic matter, and stuff like that. And I think, again, all of these guys are so good at breaking down the reality, which is very, very complex into small bite-sized things that you can take and you can use. And therefore, they're saying, let's look at what has worked and especially look at things that has worked for a very long period of time, because that is where you can be sure that it is not something which is here today and gone tomorrow. It is something that will last not only for us, but for many generations after. And that is what I like about Peter Kaufman and what I like about Munger, that they are able to distill the wisdom which have been gen generated over generations and be able to use it in our day-to-day -day life. And the book is structured in four chapters, where the first three is sort of a compilation of Charlie Munger covering his personal life, his career, uh, while, the, while the fourth cover 11 famous speeches from Munger, where maybe the most famous ones are a lessons on elementary worldly, worldly wisdom and the psychology of human misjudgment. Uh, and I will let you go further into depth of, of these uh, chapters, but you have chosen to discuss uh, the first three and the psychology of human mis misjudgment uh, today. How, how come you chose those parts? Sure, I think uh, the first three chapters uh, in my mind sort of gives a good overview of how Munger thinks, right? Uh, and while the, the last chapter in the book talks about the psychology and the common causes of human misjudgment. And my view is 
that and uh, Mangar talks about it all the time is that psychology is such a critical part of what we do because ultimately it is psychology that determines our actions and our talk and yet the psychological books that we would read in our undergrad or grad courses does not do justice to the importance of the subject and because Munger, with his sharp intellect has been able to break down the world into the common issues that we, he sees again and again i think if there is one takeaway from a psychological perspective that people can have it is just understanding where we go wrong and trying to fix that and i, I haven't re really seen anything that even comes close to what Munger has done in the psychology of human misjudgment and therefore i think the psychology of human misjudgment is something that should be in the repertoire of everybody who thinks about uh, not not just about investing but about how to live a good life uh, while the first three chapters in my mind is something which allows all of us to say how sharp munger is and how has he navigated the world you know the fact that munger and buffett has this wonderful partnership and the fact that Buffett has said that, listen, the most important thing about Charlie is his rationality. And yet, how often are we rational? <laughs> you know, there is a very good uh, mention uh, in the book about the fact that our cognition also depends on the specific opportunity that we are seeing in the world, right? So if we are um, triggered emotionally, how we will behave is very different than if we are calm and we are well rested, right? And so, we should always be mindful of our own state when we are making decisions. And especially when we are making critical decisions, it is important to slow down, think about whether it is the right time to even make a decision and then decide, do I have enough information to make a decision? And I think uh, to me, this is where Charlie's Munger's uh, contribution will last a very, very long time, that he gives us a way of thinking about things. And I was explaining to my daughter yesterday that listen, if you have uh, a manual of how to live a life, then it is Charlie's Munger Almanac, right? Poor Charlie's Almanac, because it is a life manual, you know, and you might not use everything every day, which happens even with the manual. So just go through it, read whatever appeals to you, and then come back to it often. So about the book, are you reading it mostly for yourself and rereading and thinking about it that way? And, or how much are you discussing it with other people? Right. So I feel that, you know, the book is very well discovered um, in the Buffett and Munger circles. Um, but I think what is important is how do you use the book and how different people use the books. So I was talking to a friend yesterday and he says he uses it uh, or rereads the whole book once every year. For somebody like me, I read it every few weeks. Uh, I'm not reading cover to cover. I'm reading a few different sections that I find most interesting for me, um, given the situation I am in. And sometimes I'm going back and reading the book uh, to ensure that I am a better person. And I think Munger talks a lot about that. How do you be, how do you become a better person than what you are? And what I find very useful about the book is, his, is the mental models, but also how to think through life and how to think about what type of people you bring in your ecosystem. Um, one of the very important quotes that Munger talks about is, choose clan, clients as you would friends. And so to me, that is a very important insight about the book, but that's something that I've always felt the investment industry does not do very well. And which is when you attract an investor into your fund, you need to attract investors who understand your investment style and who can live with that, that style for a long period of time. 
And this is what will help them, but this is also what will help the fund. And so, you know, it is important to figure out what type of people you want to let into the fund and how do you think about communicating both the good and the bad in an equally transparent manner. And the more you can build your reputation, the more easier it will be to be able to have that long relationship. And this is where, again, Mangar has such a wonderful mental model, which is seamless web of deserved trust, right? And as soon as you start understanding that, and this is something that both Mangar and Buffett continuously exercise. Uh, one of the things that I find so interesting in how the Mangar and Buffett world works is they acquire all these companies and the people who come with these companies are fabulously rich. They don't have to work. And yet the people who come into Berkshire work way harder than what they might have worked in the past because they realize how much of a trust both Munger and Buffett are placing in them. Uh, and because of that trust, they want to ensure that they actually not only deserve that trust, but actually enhance it, right? And so another mental model right there is by ensuring that you trust the other person, you actually increase the trust that they have in you, right? And I saw a very live example of that when I asked um, in this annual meeting of Berkshire the question, because I asked Buffett the question of how come you are so good at market timing? And, you know, I knew how he will answer it, but I still asked him the question. But the way he answered surprised me and actually just made my love for him grow many times because he said, you know what, he would first like to hire you. And he doesn't have to do that. There was no reason. But what is so amazing, what is so amazing about Buffett and Munger is how they treat people, right? And that is what differentiates. People think he's so smart from my investing perspective. I think how smart he is in terms of people management is underappreciated. And he is the smartest person to, to be able to deal with people. The fact that Charlie decided to be a subordinate partner to Buffett just shows so much about how well and how smart both these guys are, right? And in fact, I wrote an article recently where I said, why did Charlie, who is one of the highest intellect person we can think of, decide to become a subordinate partner? And it was because he was rational enough to say, well, Buffett is the best investor out there. And if I'm going to be investing, there's no harm working with one of the best. And so I think there is just so much you can, and it's not just bookish knowledge. It is what you see in practice in real life. And I think that is what is so amazing about the book that they say it as it is, but then they actually practice it, which is much, much harder to do than, uh, than you know, just saying it. That's how I'm thinking with the podcast to be the Niklas co-host here. <laughs> You're too kind. No, it's wonderful. The I'm thinking partner. the same. That's the problem. <laughs> Maybe that's why it works fairly well. So if we go back to, to the book and uh, the first chapter, it's uh, called A Portrait of Charles T. Munger. Uh, we get the background of his story and his early life, how he met Buffett and how he joined Berkshire. And as you said, many people are familiar. Many of our listeners probably uh, know the book, have read it, but... Uh, can you tell us a bit about just the background briefly and your takeaways from this chapter? Sure. So I think, um, as you point out, uh, you know, both Buffett and Munger were born in Omaha. They were like six and a half years separate from each other. So they never really ran into each other uh, till they were well settled in their professional lives. Um, Buffett was an investor and Charlie was uh, a lawyer uh, practicing law in California. 
and um, they met uh, because one of the clients of Buffett actually introduced them. And uh, it is very interesting. Again, that story itself is very interesting. And um, Buffett always takes the lead um, because he's so smart and so sharp uh, in any conversation. And when he met Munger, he decided to take a back seat and let Munger run with it. And that tells you that Munger was even faster um, in terms of taking on um, any topic and you know interacting with people. So it is. And that interaction was very interesting. And this is from his wife, Susie, who talks about, you know, she has never seen uh, Buffett take a backseat, but here he did. Uh, and so that shows that Buffett recognized early on how sharp Munger is and how, how um, you know, he puts everybody at ease around him. And Munger saw the same in Buffett. And here are two geniuses, right? And they are, about, they are ready to work with each other by giving each other the space that both of them deserve. And that is the beauty of it. Uh, and this is something, again, I keep finding with Buffett and Munger, how many good people they have brought in their orbit. You know, when, a gen when you have geniuses, it's very hard to work with other geniuses. But that is not the case you see with Buffett and Munger, right? So over time, then uh, Buffett convinced Munger. And this is interesting, you know, we always hear about how Munger convinces Buffett. But early on, it was Buffett who convinced Munger that he should leave the law practice and come to investing because that is where the money is uh, and Munger being Munger always wanted to be independent he did not want to work for a client and have fees off him uh, so I think it was a natural uh, sort of partnership between them uh, and because of the varied interest that Munger has he was able to bring a lot of insights uh, to Buffett and Buffett obviously knew so much about so many different companies that I think it was a, a wonderful uh, match. And then, of course, over time, uh, they invested in many companies which are similar companies. And over time, they realized they have very similar way of looking at things. And they came into a partnership uh, by merging different entities in which they had stakes, which ultimately came out to be Berkshire, where Buffett had a much bigger stake. So he became the chairman managing director. And of course, Munger became the vice chairman. But it was it was not something that they had planned upfront of how they will do it. It is something that evolved. And to me, that is the best part where they did not have to have a preordained agreement of how they will work with each other. They just loved working with each other. And that is how we know of Berkshire Hathaway right now. And I think it's quite interesting in that chapter that you get like these uh, descriptions from, from family and friends and, and co-workers and so on who describe uh, uh, Charlie uh, and how he, he is against them and, and what they think about him. So what, how, how do they describe him? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things which we uh, have experienced ourselves many times is that Munger is very direct. And that is what we love about Munger. Uh, and he also is mentioned as an absent mind, absent minded person, right? So he gets the things done. And then he has attention moving on to something completely different. Uh, but Having said all that, I think he is a friend's perfect friend, right? He will go there to whatever extent he had to, to ensure that he's taking care of his friends. And I think you see it time and time again with many of his very rich friends, he will say he is a friend in all situations. You can rely on Munger to be there for you when you need them, right? And he is not taking, looking to take advantage of people. He is actually bending backwards to ensure that if and I think there was a mention about how um, uh, Rick Warren talks about how Munger paid more money than he had to pay, right, to a widow and to him. <laughs> and that is a great reflection of the integrity um, that Munger has. 
and also his um, his mention that you know you are smart and I am right, and you will see why. <laughs> and that that line of his, you know, it just reflects the type of person he is, which is very very smart, but also very very convinced about his line of thinking. <laughs> and to me, um, the best part about Munger is how he breaks down the world but more importantly how he treats people and sometimes you know if you don't know Munger well enough you might think he's pretty uh, rough or he could come across as very um, as somebody who is not easy to work with but that is also his charm because he says it as it is and then it is for you to process it and ensure that you see it rationally just as Munger saw it rationally when he decided to become a subordinate at Berkshire Hathaway. So I think he expects people to be rational which is why he says things the way he does uh, and if you are rational you will accept it for what he's saying and realize that it is in your best interest that he's saying it the way it is. The only irrational decision was this Munger's folly, the boat that he, he bought. <laughs> where Buffett and actually, you know, drowned. Munger talks about, listen, wh- what was the folly in that? I had fun designing it and, uh, and <laughs> you know, having many trips and also having, you know, Buffett and uh, Rick go underwater. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, a good story. So once you have some money, you need to actually practice what you are uh, interested in practicing and not worry too much about whether a boat will get will sink or uh, swim right and i think i think uh, i just love munger for what he has um, what he has done but also how he thinks about things uh, and you know uh, when uh, when buffett was asked listen tell us why do you think um, munger is so successful the one word that buffett said was rationality right and yet he caveated that by saying he's very rational in business he's not rational in all areas of his life but he's very rational in business and so that tells you that Buffett has seen Munger being irrational in other areas, <laughs> like possibly having his kids go through a bus trip when, you know, Buffett's kids were going in plane and, uh, and uh, you know, um, being entrapped in the plane, as he puts it. So I think uh, maybe he, he goes to more extremes in certain areas. But I think what is, what is wonderful about uh, Munger is just how, how direct he is and how, uh, how he takes care of his friends. I also like in that Q&A with Buffett in the book uh, where they, they, they ask what is unusual about Charlie Munger and it's like everything is unusual about this man. But something that I thought about from uh, the first chapter is how both of them are at a very early age like business interested or like Munger is trading hamsters and we know that Buffett were doing all kinds of businesses and I know Nicholas has told us in the podcast he was selling his toys in the backyard and stuff like that. Did you also have that kind of business mind already at an early age? No, actually, I did not. I um, I was much more into sports early on. So I would actually want to just play cricket. You know, cricket is sort of religion in India. Um, and uh, so I would just want to play cricket a lot uh, and would like to uh, spend a lot of time just being outside, not at home, but just being outside with my friends and doing different things. So that is what my interest was. But as I grew up, I realized, you know what, cricket, I don't have the talent <laughs> and there's just too much competition. It's not something that I can do um, and actually succeed. And frankly, in any team sport, you need somebody who will take you under your wings, right? If you are in a personal individual sport, it's slightly different. And I'm saying by no means was I that good that I could have risen to any stature. But uh, still, uh, you know, I just enjoy that. And then gradually what dawned on me was that sports is something which I 
something I like, but it's not something that I will be able to actually achieve too much of success in. And so I switched. <laughs> so that is what I, I have done with my life. And early on, I, it was just more enjoying other people, um, what they are achieving and learning from that rather than being successful uh, much by myself. And so that is what my early childhood was. And if we move over to the second chapter, it's named the uh, Munger approach to life learning and decision making. So can you please tell us a bit about his approach, how it differs from the conventional one and why, if, if you agree, his uh, approach is superior? Right. I think if we just sort of just summarize his approach, I think it just comes down to the four words that is described, right, which is preparation, discipline, patience and preparedness. Right. And I feel that Munger is somebody who is highly, highly disciplined. And it is his discipline which allows him to take that thing that he has, which is all his intellect, and be highly patient. But it is then his preparedness, the willingness to do a lot more work and continuously do the work, which allows him then to be decisive. And if there is one thing that we hear time and time again from Munger, it is that how only a few decisions can make a very dramatic difference to your financial well-being. And to me, what many of us miss is the fact that when that opportunity comes, do we have the wherewithal to act in a manner which will make a dramatic difference to our well-being? And I think that approach is something that all of us can do better, um, can, can do, um, and therefore we need to keep um, focusing and ensuring that we allow ourselves to have that ability when such opportunity comes, right? And apart from that, you know, we have talked about rationality. I think his integrity, his honesty, he's doing more than his share. It's something that always stands apart from everybody else. You know, he could have earned so much more money possibly, not necessarily in, uh, in uh, law, but he could have earned a lot of money by being independent. But how did he or why did he choose to be a partner at Buffett? I always like to think about that because that is a great example of his rationality. And to me, when you have that successful, that brilliant, to be able to reduce your ego and to ensure that you're focusing more on what is the reality is so important. And Munger trying to walk his own um, to his own music is something that we all know about. Um, and you know, going back to Eddie, what you were saying that Munger has always uh, you know done things differently. I think it is his way of doing things which is different, um, unconventional way of thinking and also his work ethic he works a lot uh, but of course he always makes it feel that he has not really worked but again he doesn't think of work possibly because he enjoys that work and so what i was describing early on when we started the podcast i was saying listen i'm working all the time but it's not work and i think munger doesn't think of it as work and therefore he possibly feels that he's not working but he's working very hard and so his preparation is what is making the difference to how he approaches his life and you know and some of the other things that I uh, find so interesting, interesting about Munger is, you know, he says pride in a job well done is vastly, vastly constructive. As you pat yourselves on the back for behaving well, you will improve your future conduct, right? And to me, those are simple things, you know, uh, give a dog a good name, for example, right? And the dog will do well. And that dog is yourself, by the way. So if you are patting yourself on the back and you're saying, listen, a good podcast, a good uh, presentation, a good thesis, uh, a good interaction, right? All of that is hugely constructive in ensuring that you behave well the next time. 
Uh, and you know, while I we are talking about poor Charlie Zenmanek, I keep bringing Warren because I think Warren and Munger um, has had a lot of influence on each other. And Warren has famously said that you know, you tell me who your heroes are, and I will tell you how you will work out. And to me, uh, that is what the whole difference of how Munger is, because he has always had Ben Franklin as his hero, right? And the fact that Ben Franklin succeeded in so many different endeavors, right? is something that how is how charlie has succeeded as well you know he has never confined himself to just being an investor uh, and what is interesting to me is if you look at both buffett and munger the first thing they want to be remembered as is a teacher they don't want to be remembered as a as a very successful investor and frankly if you ask me the most impactful teacher in my life are these two gentlemen right so to me it is quite obvious uh, and you know if i talk to many of my friends that is what they will say as well so as much as uh, they are successful in their chosen field of investing, I think through that success, they have been able to transmit their learnings to a wider set of audience. And I think the world is better for that teachings that they have provided to us through the books, but also through the annual meetings and through the various interviews that they do. And um, the other thing which I find very interesting about Munger uh, and Buffett is the fact that they, even in their very old age, continue to work so hard you know they can easily retire and take a very easy life right um, but uh, again Mangad uh, talks a lot about praising about old age and you know the best armor of old age is a well-spent life preceding it and they still in their old age are willing to put in as much effort and willing to exercise all the mental equity in teaching us and ensuring that people who trust them have a good experience with them uh, he talks a lot about Cicero, right? To Cicero, if you live right, the inferior part of life is the early part. I think I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful quote, right? So uh, I think to me, uh, that is uh, just something that I think about all the time, which is, am I becoming a better person? Um, because if I'm becoming a better person, then I think that that is all that matters, right? Um, uh, Munger also talks about being a learning machine. And I think if there is one thing that we can all talk about and learn about from these guys, it is just how to be a learning machine. The fact that these guys can learn at 92 and 98, oh my God. I mean, we need to just be a little bit more mindful that are we being open uh, and are we able to process new information? Uh, I was meeting a, a very famous investor from India day before yesterday, and his investing style is very different than mine. But it was very good to hear how he has approached investing. and. You know, the default reaction is, you know what, your style is different. You know, you can do it your way. I can do it my way and move on. But it's good to know how they have done it uh, and how they have been able to use their investment style and make money and realize that there's no one way of making money. There are many, many ways of making money. And through that, those different ways, we are in a position to uh, further ourselves and take the best of what is out there. So... And there's so many different lessons. I can actually spend a lot more time on it, but I don't want to keep <laughs> talking about specific instances. Happy to go wherever you want. That was a really, really nice introduction. Uh, and I just want to, I just want to discuss the the piece about mental models a bit yeah. further, because uh, I think Charlie speaks about like having a toolbox. So you have this this toolbox of of concepts that you really that you really understand that and that ha have like. Uh, been able to survive uh, the the test of time and and so on and he always brings up this example the man with a hammer uh, 
so to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you only have the hammer, then then you don't have enough tools, so to speak. So you need a full toolbox of, of tools in order to, to handle life's different situations. How would you describe a, a mental model in that aspect? Yeah, no, I, I think... I think mental models are what makes life a lot easier. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just reading Charlie and his mental model tool set is really what has opened my eyes of how to look at world. Um, and having enough mental models so that you can choose what makes the most sense at any given time is really what is critical. Um, and there are so many beautiful mental models that Manga talks about. We will talk about the psychological mental models subsequently. Uh, but if we just think about some of the things that he has mentioned, right? A thing not a, a thing not worth doing is not doing worth doing well, right? So the fact is, if something is not important, don't worry about spending a lot of time on it. Some of us will say, is cryptocurrency worth investing in? And if we reach a conclusion, it is not. Now you completely can cut that thing out of your um, of of something that is taking your attention. And so suddenly now you free yourself. And that's a great, great mental model, which is if it is not worth don't spend any time on it. Go to something else. Similarly, he talks about, you know, ability to take criticism constructively and learn from it, right? Because most of us, whenever we are criticized, the first reaction is defense, right? And yet when we look at how Munger and Buffett use seize candy and the criticism that they got from Ira Marshall about, listen, you guys are cheap stakes you are not valuing enough a good business and a good management. And Munger says, listen, they took that criticism and improved subsequently. And that is a great mental model, which is criticism. If if it is a constructive criticism, it could be immensely helpful if we can learn from it. And so that is a mental model where you can look at what somebody is saying and on a rational basis decide, is that something that I should worth spending more time on? Or it's something that is coming from um, because of various, uh, you know, incentives that the person is saying. Similarly, you know, he talks about the fact that whenever you're looking at an investment opportunity, the it is not uh, the decision to make an investment in something is dependent on what is the next alternative you have. So your opportunity cost. That's again a great mental model, right? Many times. Especially, I mean, uh, all of us in our um, in our college, in our in our bachelors and in our masters, have learned about capital asset pricing model, right? And how uh, the assets are priced perfectly. And we all know that assets are not priced perfectly because of the psychological biases and because people are swayed by many non-fundamental factors. And so, if we can then look at what is the best use of my capital the next best use of my capital, then I can decide what is the best opportunity. And by the way, the opportunity set is not everything that is out there in the world. It is just what I can understand. So suddenly, first, you need to think about what you can understand. And then you need to think about what within that is something that will give you the best return. And maybe that best return is not good enough, in which case you need to be in cash rather than in the uh, corresponding opportunity. Similarly, he says the you know the learning machine. I think learning machine is uh, is a very very good mental model to have. And he says if you have not destroyed one of your best ideas in the last one year, maybe you are not learning as much. And you know that's again, whenever we are uh, learning, we are working very hard to get a mental model to learn something. 
And now he's saying, no, no, not only it's not good enough to learn something, but you also need to destroy it. How hard is that, right? So the fact that we have to keep learning, but also destroying because you have found a better mental model. And so the willingness that we have to say, no, this is something that is, I have found a better mental model than what I had. And therefore, thinking of it as a tool set and then saying, I have a better tool than what I had in the past is a great way of thinking about the various mental models that we create and we use as we go along. In terms of um, the filters uh, Charlie employs, he, of course, have a sort of a, a focus on uh, on better businesses with wide moats and uh, strong management teams. So is that is that one of the filters that that he uses to i mean when you when you speak about like uh, concentrations and and only to focus on certain things that's one of course how do you how, how similar is that to your style of of choosing businesses yeah sure so i think um, i would say that these guys are grandmasters in terms of how they choose businesses and good businesses which have a lot of longevity. Uh, what, when I am looking at businesses, I don't think I can take a 10-year view uh, because in personally, in Indian context, I feel that the businesses go through a lot of change over time. And what I am really looking for is what can happen in the businesses over the next few years. I don't think I am able to sit today and say what will happen 10 years from now, which I think Amangar and Buffett are able to do really, really well. Uh, uh, so that is one difference that I am taking a little bit shorter term view. That doesn't mean that I will not own the business for a 10 years. But what I'm just saying is when I'm initially assessing the business, I am taking a shorter term view because that is all I can take given the information I have and given the competitive forces that are currently playing in the business. In terms of uh, the focus, you know, Munger and Buffett has always said that it is much more important to know what business is or what business boat you want to be in, right? In my context, I feel that the most important thing when I'm investing in an Indian business is the management. So I put a bigger emphasis on management than on the business. And the reason is that even if the business is a good business, but if the management is not as good, then I may never see any returns versus if the business is a good business, maybe the business keeps doing well, but if the management does not want to return, or share the returns from the business to the shareholders, pretty much I will not make money. So I always feel that unless I can trust the management, no matter how good a business it is, I don't want to participate in it in, in the uh, Indian context. But everything else about the business or, or what they say, which is, listen, find a good business which has a competitive advantage, which can grow well over the long term, right, with a management that is trustworthy, who is good in capital allocation, and has a long runway. All of that makes perfect sense to me. It's just there are certain nuances in terms of their approach versus my approach. And one of them is just the management is more important than the business. And then the second thing is I don't think that far out. I'm thinking a little shorter and I'm very willing to then either uh, having the ability to come out of a particular business if my thesis is wrong or to continue for a very long term. And then the third thing I will say which differs from them is that you know they are so big they only can invest in big businesses and for me i am actually very small and i'm very happy to small invest in small businesses and take advantage of the price discrepancies that i see from time to time it's something that buffett has done in his early years um, and so to me that works very well and another thing that's quite special about uh, munger's approach is uh, 
that that he employs uh, checklists and I, I don't mean that that's uh, maybe uncommon among uh, investors but you could just think that a, a person who is I mean with the IQ of Charlie Munger he still thinks that you need to have a checklist because otherwise you will miss something important and um, our boss uh, Björn Fallen uh, has written a book on the subject and we interviewed him uh, on episode 17 uh, and why why does Charlie think checklists are so important Right. I think um, checklist allows one to be very well prepared in terms of going through the most important things that you have to look at. Uh, and especially when there is too much of information that is that, that is coming to you, there is always a risk that uh, you will miss out some of the important considerations. The second thing is checklist allows you to ensure that you have taken all the lessons of the past, right? Not just a few lessons, because you might have done 10 checks, but if there are 20 checks, and let's say you've done check 10, you might have missed something which is very, very important. And, you know, there are various investors and, you know, Atul Gohande has written such a good book on the checklist manifesto, where he talks about how every pilot uses a checklist. Uh, I think there is a lot of talk also in the investment literature about checklist. And yet we know that not enough people use checklist. And I think uh, to your point, Nicholas, you mentioned that, you know, Charlie Munger uses checklist and he uses checklist by ensuring that he has all those mental models in his mind. And as he comes across a situation, he's quickly going through the checklist. So he doesn't, it doesn't feel like he was, he's using a checklist, but he is. And for the less gifted people like us ourselves, I think it is important for us to make it much more uh, disciplined by saying, listen, here is all the various items and which of them it passes. And by the way, you know, it is always possible that an investment will not meet some of the checklist criteria. And it is okay to still invest in my mind. But what is important is to say, I know it doesn't fulfill this condition, but yet I'm willing to override for an X reason. Because if something is too perfect, it is very likely that the price is not good enough. So, so you need to account for the fact, and this is again uh, where his whole mental model of comparing investing to a parity mutual system, right, where you are betting on a horse, uh, and you know which horse will do well. But again, the odds have changed in a manner that now you don't get the desired return. So, what do you do? Do you bet on a horse which is not that good, but it is giving me very good returns? And that's the that's the challenge we have in investing. And so I think checklist is a great way to ensure that I have taken all the lessons from the past, not, not just mine, but also of other investors and use that information to ensure that I've assessed the company that I'm looking at and then decide what I want to do. So do you use do you use checklist yourself? I use checklist, but I must say that I am not as disciplined that I should be. <laughs> and so again, this conversation that we are having is once again a great reminder that one needs to be more disciplined. And I talked about, um, you know, Munger has those four attributes, discipline, patience, preparedness, decisiveness. And it is his discipline which has made him such a great investor. And I think uh, having this conversation reminds me that I need to be more disciplined than what I am. <laughs> Yeah, it's always a good refresher to to speak about it and be be questioned. Thank you for <laughs> taking your time to to do yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And if if we move over to the third chapter, this one yeah. is a compilation made by the famous investor Whitney Tilson, uh -huh. and this is called uh, Mungerism, Charlie Unscripted. Yeah. And here he describes the culture and the approach uh, of Berkshire, but there's also a long list of criticism of of different institutions, uh, Wall Street, academia, and so on. So what are your takeaways from this chapter? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, ultimately uh, when we think about uh, criticisms to any of the institutions, be it academia, be it in um, Wall Street, it is quite obvious why those institutions don't work as well. And the, one of the main reasons is everybody is trying to maximize their own interest, right? And so it is a pure incentive cost bias. Huh? And so when we look at um, academia, I think the fact is everybody is trying to become tenured. Everybody is trying to publish a lot of articles. Guess what? They are focusing on a very narrow uh, sphere, right? And they are never looking and saying what else is out there outside of my area of expertise. Obviously, there is a balkanization, there is very small uh, focus, and it does not capture what reality is. You know, the, there is this artificial construct that we have created across different areas that we all study, right? We psychology, biology, uh, you know, investing, engineering, whatever you take, right? And we have to create that artificial construct because these fields are so vast that if we had kept it um, very um, narrow, very vast, then we could never have specialized. So I think we need a synthesizer like Charlie Munger to be able to look at across all of these fields and say, what are the best ideas and bring them together. And unfortunately, in the academia, there is no incentive for anybody to bring them together and therefore they don't. And similarly in Wall Street, uh, Wall Street is always trying to make the most money. They don't care whether this is over the long term because who knows what will happen in the long term, <laughs> whether people will have the job or not. So they are just trying to make the most money uh, in the shortest period and then figure out the next job. And so I think the, the focus has shifted from doing well by doing good over the long term to doing well, but in whatever manner uh, or whatever it takes to do well, right? And having been on Wall Street for many years before I moved out uh, on my entrepreneurial journey, I can say without any doubt that people incentives are very different, right? You get bonus at the end of the year. So you're focused on that year. You want to ensure that the year is a good year so that you get a good bonus. And then next year you will see, right? And so that is how it is. And I think one of the key takeaways from Munger is incentives matter, right? And you just need to look at incentives in whatever area that you are looking at and then trying to make the decisions. And when we speak about these different disciplines, I'm, I'm curious to hear how you are approaching this. Uh, have you studied like chemistry and, and physics and eco economics and, and so on and try to learn the, the main principles from each of them or, or how have you been doing that? Yeah, so um, I am actually an engineer by training. Um, so I did a, a bachelor's in engineering uh, from IIT Bombay. And so, you know, the good news is there are a lot of mental models that come from engineering, which which I was lucky to sort of um, in develop over time. Um, also, then I did uh, uh, MBA later on. So there were some of economics and some of, so you get both the hard sciences, but you also get some of the softer sciences. But I would say that I've never seen a better uh, compilation or a better synthesis of these different mental models than what I the, what we see in poor Charlie Zellmanac. And I think that is the beauty of the book, that you don't need to be an engineer to understand what he's talking about, right? Be it the quality assurance thing, right? Or be it, uh, you know, how you have a nuclear reaction. You need to get to a certain stage and then a nuclear reaction. So you don't need to be a chemist. You just need to know that a chain reaction has to get to a certain stage that things start becoming meaningful, right? And so I think uh, the beauty of a book like uh, a Poor Charlie's Almanac is that even if you don't have the background, you read a book and you can understand what is happening in each of those sciences. And therefore, you can synthesize. In fact, I will say the other way. Being an engineer, 
I could understand that model well, but I could never understand how to apply it till I read a poor Charlie's Almanac, right? So I think a poor Charlie's Almanac, what it does is it makes those models accessible and useful in the context of our daily lives, which is very hard to do if you just are in your subject because you understand a nuclear reaction, but so what? <laughs> and that is, I think, where the challenge is. Yeah, we even get uh, the name of Lollapalooza effect. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's again, this is something that people don't explain enough. But how do you get these amazing, amazing returns in a world which where there's always a lot of competition? You cannot explain it through one mental model or one reason. There are many things that are working together for you to get a Lollapalooza result. And he demonstrates it through a Coca-Cola example in the book. How do you get to that, right? And how do you ensure that you have all of these different factors that are working together um, from a physiology to the aftertaste. It's like unbelievable, right? You know, all the different mental models that brings together to say uh, whether it's a hot, a hot beverage or a cold beverage and try to then say, listen, how do I make it so that it becomes the most dominant brand? Uh, of course, you know, the reality might turn out different and that's okay. Uh, but the fact is how do you think through, even when you know it is successful, how to make it happen from a ground zero and take it to all the way. And Lollapalooza is there in so many different areas you know we look at so many of the today's successful companies and you say how could that happen and you can see how smart they were but also how hard they worked and also how lucky they were and so it is all of those things and a very good mental manipulation that they have done to achieve the successes they have and they're not done anything wrong by the way i think they have just used the mental models and used them in a manner that it is effective And Charlie has not written that much publicly, but luckily he has been uh, doing a few speeches over the years. And one of the most famous one is the psychology of human mis misjudgment and psychology is maybe the most important aspect. I see you're smiling here to, to have the question. So please tell us more about this and why you think that, why you want to talk about this. Yeah, no. So I think uh, uh, psychology is something that we are influenced by with or by on a daily basis. And yet... Uh, when we read psychology, and I have read some psychology early on in my bachelor's and master courses, and I would say that psychology was just about treating patients, right? And then you come to a psychology chapter here in Poor Charlie's Almanac, and you say, whatever he's saying is something that is relevant every day for all of us, right? Um, and so, I mean, let me take a few biases that he talks about and make it much more real, right? So he talks about incentive cost bias or, you know, the... And I'm just simplifying it to the first uh, bias that he talks about. And to me, that is a that is a very, very important bias that we don't realize it. And now that I understand it, I try to use it as often as is possible. And the incentive cause bias is really all about saying people will react to whatever are the best incentives that they have. Right. So even if and he gives an example of why a Xerox product is not selling well, because, well, the salespeople were much more incentivized to sell the old Xerox product rather than new Xerox product. And in my own personal example, I had a situation recently where um, we had somebody from LinkedIn reach out to me. Um, now, one of the mental models I use is I don't buy anything uh, when somebody is selling it to me. So this is a mental model that comes from Guy Spear, right? The Education of a Value Investor, wonderful book. And there he talks about the fact that he doesn't want to buy something when somebody is selling it. So I have taken that mental model from him and I've tried to use it a lot, right? 
And so in general, when people are reaching out to me through LinkedIn or whatever, I'm not very interested in engaging with them because I know they're trying to sell me something, right? And I have a simple rule, which is not buy anything when people are selling. So normally I would say no. And there was this person for whatever reason, I said, okay, you know, he insisted a few times and I said, okay, we can have a conversation. I would want to understand what is it that you're doing. Is this part of your checklist? Any incentive questions? We have a couple in our Red Eye rating that we use as equity analysts. Oh, I see. So no, so in our checklist, in terms of when we look at our investment uh, opportunities, we do always say the management, what is their incentives? And we actually pay a lot of emphasis on that because of what I was saying earlier, which is our management, we want our management's interest to be aligned with that of the shareholder. But we also think that management is the most important factor when we are investing in Indian equities. So many times when we are investing in a company, we want to see management having a significant ownership in the business. And in fact, that is one of the reasons we like Indian equities, because we find that in India, many of the companies that are run are run by the promoters who started the company. And now currently they are the managers as well. So they're sitting in the same shoes as that of the shareholders, as long as they're sharing the spoils of the business with the shareholder, right? And so we like those businesses. We like management who are actually buying the stock back or buying it for their own uh, purposes from the stock market, not through a preferential allotment or whatever, right? So we actually do use that as a checklist almost on an ongoing basis because we think it's very, very powerful. Uh, but coming back to my example, so this person came in and he said, listen, we provide this X service or Y service. Uh, how do we do you reach out to a potential investor? And he said, listen, how do you charge for it? And he says, we charge on an annual basis, right? And I said, would you be interested in charging if I get a client rather than just paying on an annual basis? He said, no. I said, okay, I have no interest. So that is a simple example where the incentives of that particular service provider was all about making an annual fee and he will just keep uh, rotating and getting new clients like that but frankly he has no interest in whether i succeed or fail unfortunately in my mind that business model itself is flawed because if your clients don't succeed you as a business will not succeed but the flip side also is maybe they don't have enough confidence in the business model to be able to uh, to have that sort of a uh, revenue model. So I think that's just a very simple example of incentive cost bias. And, you know, Munger has said that he has been in the 95 percentile of people who focus on incentive cost bias, and yet he has always underestimated it. And to me, that is just a great example of a few things, if done right, can just make a very big difference in terms of how you come out. Uh, and and we can spend some more time on other biases, but that's one that I want to talk about. Maybe I can I can share a short story on the psychology of human misjudgment. And I I actually I mean one of the um, tendencies that he brings up is is the memory limitations. And uh, it's I mean we as humans we remember more if we have like a visual representation of of something. So I created this. I have a summer place, and I created this. Um, map for myself where maybe there is a, a neighbor that I like especially I mean more than others for example then I remember when I walk past in my in my head I walk past I I remember the liking disliking tendency then I walk past uh, we have an architect living there and next to the architect is like a, a craftsman with the things all over the over the place and you see the the contrasting <laughs> Uh, difference there and then you remember the the contrasting tendency and then 
every time we go out to the to the summer place with the car, there's a guy stopping us. He wants to speak, and you have the say something syndrome. So I really created this uh, map for myself, and it makes it really easy to to remember everything in, in that. Do you do you have a similar system, or or how do you remember all the tendencies and and have like yeah? This so it, it is something head? which is a work in progress. I must say, uh, I don't have a good. Uh, you know, I think you have created this me- memory map, which I think is very impressive, right? Uh, what I have tried to do is. Uh, just you know, go through a situation, and then I will say, okay, what are the various psychological biases that I would be subject to given this situation? And the more I exercise that list across various situations, the more likely it is that I will remember it the next time a new situation comes in. So I haven't really done the thorough work that you have done, Nicholas, <laughs> but <laughs> it was fun work. I mean, it's but yeah, uh, it no, but really I do fun. think. Uh, you know, these memory maps or mind maps are really, really amazing in terms of bringing it uh, to um, bringing it when we need that particular information. And is there is there any other tendency that you really want to bring up? I mean, you mentioned a few of them incentive in, incentives, for example, which I think Munger brings up as uh, maybe the most important one. But is there other that you and, and of course, it's situation dependent. Yeah. Yeah, there are quite a few actually. You know, I think uh, deprival superreaction is a huge one. You know, you have something, you're very close to getting it, and then it's taken away from you. And people go berserk, <laughs> right? And we see it all the time in the stock markets. Uh, you want to buy a stock, right? And it runs away from you. And you wait, and it runs away further. And now you are like, oh my God, I should have bought it. And one of the ways that I do to avoid um, getting... Um, involved in a the deprival super reaction is to put limit orders. I almost never watch the market. I don't worry about how the stocks are moving. If the stock price comes to what I want it to be, great. If not, tomorrow is another day, right? Uh, and that is a great example where things, if if you know you're very excited about something, you will just buy it at any price and you will lose the rationality of why you should be buying it, whatever price you're buying. So that's another example of deprival super reaction. I think uh, social proof is another example of psychological uh, biases that we have. Social proof is something that we see all the time. <laughs> In the stock market, I think it's a great example. You see a Bitcoin being taken to whatever price or NFT being taken to whatever price uh, or technology stocks for that matter. Right? Uh, it's easy to talk about it now. I could not have said the same thing and gotten away a uh, year back. But uh, but no, the point is that, um, you know, there is inherently a momentum in things in, in, the, in the financial markets. Right? Things are going up, they keep going up. And things, when they start going down, they possibly keep going down. And this is part of the fact that there is a social proof. If something is going up, there's also the reflexive tendency, which is out there, which basically says something is going up means possibly it is a good thing and therefore more people jump in and vice versa. And so I think there is definitely uh, something that we have to all take into account, which is, and this is where, you know, Benjamin Graham talks about, you know, you're right, not because others, because the price is going up, you're right, because you're reasoning it, right? And so I think having those antidotes to, to these psychological biases is very, very important. Uh, authority is another big one, you know, you come in and you basically have some important figure pointing out why a stock is going up, why the markets are going up, right? And and you you may or may not agree with that. If you don't agree, you don't have to uh, don't have to act on it. You should definitely listen to them, but you should make your own decisions. And one of the things that we try to do is whenever we are saying we like a company X or a company Y, we always would say 
why do we like company X? And we will write a small thesis, right? And so maybe I can talk about one recent example of a, of a thesis that we put out there. And I will just mention it. But of course, this is not uh, investment advice, right? So this is just a, a way of illustrating. Uh, so we have uh, pointed out a company called Peramal Enterprises. It's a pretty big company in India. It's around uh, 45,000 crores. So let's say around $7 billion, right? And now this is a company where, and maybe it will help illustrate some of the various concepts we have been talking about. Right. So this is a company where the management owns 44% of the company. Right. So there is that incentive alignment that we were talking about earlier. You look at it, the uh, the promoter, uh, the person who started the company from 1988 to 2021, they have delivered a 24% CAGR, 24%, which means that over those 33 years, they have had a 1200x. Okay. This is a 1200x over a 33 year time period okay um, and this is still 2021 i'm saying because 22 results are not yet out so i'm just giving you so they have an amazing track record they have an incentive alignment right they have an additional thing which is going on which is there is an, a special situation where there are, there are two different businesses a financial business and a pharmaceutical business and they're looking to separate them and one of the issues with this business currently is that if you look at the financial metrics, it's very difficult because they're two, they, you know, they are chalk and cheese, right? So it's hard to understand the financials, right? And management has said in the past that they will separate it. And now they are able to move forward with it. And we think by end of 2022, they will be separating it out. Uh, in fact, they got most of the approvals in place and we are sitting right now in May. So I think by end of 22, definitely it will be done. It will be two separate listed businesses, right? And then if you do a sum of the parts, uh, many people will look at doing some of the parts and they will possibly apply a holding company discount. And what we are saying is there is no need for a holding company discount because in the next six months, that holding company discount will disappear, right? But because there is a social proof and everybody is saying, well, you know, this company has possibly not done as well in the last one year or two years, maybe they will not do as well, right? So this is the, the recency bias, if you will. Uh, uh, they are ignoring that fact that they have developed so much of uh, shareholder value over time and they have a, a special situation in terms of the segregation. If you look at the sum of the parts, we think it is easily possible that something, this can easily double in the next two to three years. That's our thesis on it, right? And if uh, there is interest people have, they can reach out to me. I have put a thesis out there. Uh, I'm also presenting this on one of the conferences that is happening in India. Uh, it's called an Indian Investing Conclave, but I'm also submitted this on one of the platforms. So I can, I'm happy to share about this thesis for people who may have an interest. Um, um, but there are, you know, uh, again, uh, there are many such opportunities that I can see in India, which actually align with some of the psychological biases that we talk about. And I can see why those situations are there. I mean, a few months back, I presented uh, a thesis um, on something called Ujivan Financial. And uh, there, the stock had been coming down, even though uh, there were a lot of good triggers. And I speculated why it was coming down. And it was because there was a end of the year, end of the financial year selling that was going on. And it was very interesting. I presented it at MOI, the Manual of Ideas Conference. And, uh, and that was actually, I presented it the last working day of the Indian financial year. And, and the next financial year, the next day it was up because that 
the selling pressure that was there because of end of year selling went away. So what I'm saying is if you can identify these biases and you can take advantage of those biases, I think there are good opportunities to be had. That doesn't mean that you're always right. It does mean that when you find them and you have a good reason why those biases are present, that's a you will be able to. Fantastic example of how you can get an edge by, I mean, understanding the behavioral aspects of, of things. People often refer to like having an analytical edge or informational edge, but uh, most of that is uh, maybe arbitraged away. But I think this human element of, of things is is really, uh, yeah, it will never it will never be removed. I think. Uh, and I I just wanted to ask you brought up uh, an example of uh, I mean maybe when when things uh, hopefully will will uh, go go the right way for you, but. Uh, Thinking about all the decisions you have been taking as an investor, what do you think are your most common biases? Yeah, so I think one of the biases that I find, at least for myself, is you know once I start talking about something, I start believing more in it. <laughs> so something I have to counter uh, because like confirmation the, bias, uh, confirmation bias, exactly, confirmation and consistency bias. Because if I talk about it. Uh, then I start believing it more. And it is actually, in many cases, it is beneficial, especially when I'm uh, writing in my letters about uh, how I should behave, right? But writing it in my letters, I think I'm, again, ingraining it in myself. But at the same time, when I'm talking about a thesis, I need to be mindful of the fact that the thesis was prepared at a point of time with a certain information, right? Now, just because I put a thesis out there in the world doesn't mean that I'm wedded to it. I need to be still quite willing to take the new information that comes in and act accordingly. And so that is one bias I'm very mindful of. Quite challenging, right? Because it's, as you say, I mean, you need this uh, conviction in, in, in order to stay in, uh, in companies. And I think Munger has said that uh, the money in investing is, uh, is not in buying and selling. It's about holding. So you need that, but you always need to be aware that you can be wrong. Yes, absolutely. And so um, I think it is important to talk to people who might have the opposite side of that view. Um, uh, so, for example, I was talking recently to somebody and I was telling him why I'm so bullish on India. And then he had a thesis of why he's not as bullish on India. And it was good to hear that because unless you are willing to hear that and understand why they are saying what they are saying, it is hard to uh, actually have the same level of conviction, right? And so it, it is not easy to listen to it, I must say, but it is something that we have to train ourselves to listen to and then figure out whether, uh, are they being rational or are you being rational or neither of us are being rational. <laughs> so, so I think that is important. And in the in the beginning, we mentioned that you're a fund manager and managing partner at Doordashi India Fund. And we talked a lot about India and, and your different styles and so on. But can you tell us briefly about the origins of Doordashi and what kind of fund do you have? Just to sure, get a picture. Sure. So, yeah. So, Doordashi India Fund is a Delaware, India, US-based fund that focuses on investing in Indian equities. Um, and the whole idea behind starting the fund was we wanted to focus on uh, Indian equities and actually do much better than um, the indices will do either in US or India over the long term, right? And we think that we can do that because in India, what happens is that there are a lot more price fluctuations for non-fundamental reasons. So if we can actually understand the business, understand the management and invest over the long term, we think we can, we can actually do very well. I mean, my personal track record in the past gives me the conviction 
that um, I have done very well. And I think we are going to use the same approach as we are investing in Indian equities. The philosophy is basically is a value investing philosophy that we follow at the fund. So we want to buy things at a significant discount to value. But we also think that growth is a very significant part of value. Sometimes you will conflate the two. We think India is a growth market. There will be a lot of growth because of the demographics, because of the demand. Um, and so we think, and as the supply chain sort of moves around, I think there might be a pretty good opportunity for India. So we are quite bullish in terms of what are the opportunities that we see in India and the fact that there are a lot of companies. You know, there are almost 5,000 companies in India of which 2,500 trade on a daily basis. So there is a lot of opportunity and we really need like 20 companies. So we think that we can continue to do well. and because of the inherent volatility uh, you know so in the last eight months um, a lot of money has been coming out of the indian equity market especially by the foreign players the foreign portfolio investors and so what that is doing is that as the liquidity comes out and as the money comes out you know right now the indian investors are putting the money in but the market in general have been weak right and we think that is creating good pockets of opportunity uh, as long as we understand the business we can value it we, we are very comfortable uh, going in and buying things with the mindset that we'll keep it for a few years in the interim that value will be discovered. And uh, so the fact that we have good growth opportunities, good demand, but also a lot of fluctuations. And then we have a long-term capital, right? And that is what we keep insisting with our investor base that, you know, if you're coming to us, invest uh, with a long-term horizon. And that is really what our investor base is. They understand our approach. So that gives us the ability to take advantage of Mr. Market rather than be swayed by them. And I think that is really what has worked well for us. And for listeners who are interested in investing, how can they, is it open for everyone or how is it working? Yeah, so it is, um, there are obviously, this is a hedge fund. So we have certain constraints on who can invest with us. But if there are people who would have an interest in learning more about the fund, they should reach out to me and I'm very happy to talk to them about what we do. Because what we find is that it is important to have an alignment of interest between the investors and the and myself and the fund manager. And so we want to ensure that they understand our approach and they can align to it because it is important to ensure that they can live with our approach because that is how they will make money. And our overriding concern is that if people come to us, they should they should make money over time. And we cannot guarantee, but it's that's what we are trying to do. And that is what that is how we can make the alignment by ensuring that people can reach out. And I'm very happy to explain to them what we do and what are some of the requirements around it. We obviously only want accredited investors in the fund, people who who have a certain amount of net worth and a certain amount of uh, money that they're making. But beyond that, uh, I think it is really alignment of approach that is very, very important. And Rajiv, you, you said that you are based in, in the US, but of course you, your heritage is in India and you're, you were born and raised there. Um, yeah. And um, I was just thinking because, I mean, I'm, I'm based in Sweden and if I want to have exposure to the Indian market, it's typically through m mutual funds where where the fund manager is maybe Swedish or yeah, I could, could invest in, in a foreign country uh, manager as well. But uh, typically, there are, there are no like uh, foot on the ground, uh, so to speak. How much of a benefit is uh, is it having someone like you who has like uh, yeah, who understands the culture and and uh, and the rules and so on? Right. I mean, we definitely think that if somebody were to invest in Indian equities, it is definitely helpful to understand how the whole Indian system works. Um, 
because you know there are various nuances that are always present uh, i think increasingly more and more information is available on the internet uh, which is great but it is important to learn how the business works how the system works how the people work and that is very hard for somebody who does not understand that uh, that culture or that system well that doesn't mean that uh, somebody who has uh, who is not from india but have spent a lot of time will not be able to understand but i do think uh, people have to put in a lot of time before they feel like they will be at par and in this is a business where you have relative competitive advantage right and so one of the things uh, i feel is that if you have a competitive advantage you should make the most of it and that is one of my competitive advantage and so therefore i focus on indian equities because i feel like i can then bring something additional for my investors which others may not be able to do and i see you have a big bookshelf behind you and this is a book podcast so we are of, cur- of course curious if you can mention one or two other books besides this masterpiece that has influenced you greatly and that you could recommend to listeners sure so actually i will um sort of break it down into investing and non-investing books. I think um, in the investing book, I think apart from Poor Charlie's Almanac, I would say that Warren Buffett's shareholders letters are a must read. It's not, I mean, it is available on a book form on Amazon, but um, you can also get it free. And I think it's one of the best ways to learning of learning about different businesses, especially Buffett's mention about the great, good and gruesome businesses. I mean, that's a masterpiece, right? You know, how should you think about businesses is really, really important. I think Harvard Marx wrote this wonderful book about the most important thing. Um, and, you know, most of us are just focused on the first level thinking. But uh, Harvard Marx mentioned about the second level thinking and how you should think about what is happening. But what is the consequence of what is happening is very, very important. Um, Peter Peter Kundal actually wrote, he's a Canadian investor and he wrote a book called There's Always Something to Do. I really enjoyed that book. You know, it was, it is, you can see the passion of the, of the investor coming through there, right? I mean, he, and one of the things he always says is you always have to change a winning game, you know, because a winning game is something that has already been discovered. And so sometimes people say, oh, you know what, we can keep riding it. Maybe, maybe you are lucky and you can keep riding it, but you should always be willing to look at other opportunities and again i will go back and say that you know buffett and munger always talks about circle of competence but what they don't talk about is how they have expanded their circle of competence continuously over the over the last 60 years right their learning machine analogy that they give so i think uh, there is always something to do with a good book intelligent investor benjamin graham most of us will be familiar and i think he gives us the three main concepts margin of safety stock is buying a business and mr market um There are various others I will skip in the interest of time, but the non-investing books I will say is one of them is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Uh, I think it's it's a great book in how your subconscious has a huge influence on what you end up being. Uh, And again, I did not necessarily realize the impact of subconscious way later, but I think Uh, and there, if you see my bookshelf, there are quite a few subconscious books um, or how to you know, take advantage of your subconscious. I think it's a great book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel, Daniel Kahneman. Again, a great book about our thought process, how to should be process. Robert C. Aldeani's Influence, uh, that's another great book. Uh, again, a psychological book. The Fool by Randomness, Nassim Taleb, again, a great book. I think it just talks about there are so many random events that are happening and we are continuously getting fooled on and we need to know when are we being fooled versus when are we taking advantage of it. So there are so many good books out there. Uh, I 
I'm just quickly rattling them, but yeah, I, I think we can talk through many of them. Yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's very interesting to hear more about you and talk about this uh, fantastic book. And I would like to finish with a quote from the book, uh, page 70, with Harvey Firestone saying that uh, one has to get perspective and that one can get it from books or from people and preferably from both. So thank you so much, Rajiv. I hope this episode has been uh, great for listeners who has not who, who don't have the book. They really you have to have this book in your bookshelf. Uh, it's uh, a masterpiece. And for those who have read the book several times or rereading every week like you, uh, I hope that they find this uh, refreshing episode and uh, they can take something new with them. And lastly, Rajiv, where can our audience follow you? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, they can just search for Rajiv Agarwal, Dudarshi India Fund. I think they will find me. On Twitter, I am at Rajiv underscore AGR. So they can look me up there and also on Facebook. I have a website, dudarshiadvisors.com. And, uh, and I can send it to you, Eddie, and you can put it on the show notes if, you, if, if that's what you want to do. We will do that. Thank you so much, Rajiv. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Great talking to you, Nicholas and Eddie. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.